0: CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange traded funds, you're in the right place. Every week, we're bringing you interviews and analysis and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, we'll talk to Nobel laureate and Yale University professor Robert Schiller about how expensive stocks have been getting. He's worried about that. We're talking about standout behavioral trends he's seeing and the ripple effects of this week's presidential election. Here's my conversation with Bob Schiller and also with Ed Klissel. He's the chief U.S. strategist for Ned David Research. He studied elections and the impact on markets going back to 1900. Professor Schill, I just want to pick up on our discussion earlier about your New York Times op-ed, where you said uh, you were concerned about the potential high prices in the market. Can you tell us what's concerning you right now about the prices and whether or not that's impacted or related to COVID? I think we have to look at
2: what people are thinking, not necessarily what they're talking most actively about. About 30 years ago, I started surveying both institutional and individual investors. And what I've discovered with our latest results is that among individual investors, uh, the assessed the likelihood of a crash is that, like 1929, and that's a famous narrative, is at about the highest it's been. It is the highest it's been. Uh, or in other words, my crash confidence index is at its lowest since uh, it started out in 1989. So I'm worried about that. They also think the market is uh, the uh, valuation confidence is low, especially for retail investors. But it, it's true for individ- for institutional investors as well. They're on the low side, both crash confidence and and yeah. valuation confidence. So that puts me wondering what
1: frame of mind are we in now? We we had a long discussion at the end of last year about your book on narrative economics coming out. Are you sort of suggesting here that be, because The fear is very high that people can talk themselves uh, into a market crash. I mean, what's the implication for people having a market narrative in their head that the market could could crash? Because the market did have a pretty big drop, 30%, just a little while ago. And we we sort of went through that, and the markets are back with tremendous stimulus. Is is there something that's concerning you now with this narrative that people have in their heads that that somehow they could wish it to happen?
2: Yeah, that what happened between... um uh, February 19th and March 23rd was the uh, embellishment of a, of a pandemic narrative. Uh, and the word depression, sudden, great dep- talk about the Great Depression. Now, they sound like very different things, but for a while, at least, we thought they were similar. Uh, and so maybe that's passed. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not counseling pulling out of the market. I'm, I'm not being alarmist here. It does still have a uh, excess return uh, compared with alternatives. THAT IS PRETTY SUBSTANTIAL.
1: YEAH, YOU HAVE A a LONG HISTORY OF WARNING ABOUT HIGH-PRICED MARKETS. Uh, YOU BECAME VERY WELL KNOWN FOR THAT FIRST EDITION OF IRRATIONAL EXUBERANCE, TALKING ABOUT HIGH STOCK PRICES, AND THAT that CAME OUT RIGHT AS THE MARKET WAS TOPPING OUT IN THE EARLY PART OF 2000, AS I RECALL. THEN YOU TALKED ABOUT HIGH REAL ESTATE PRICES, uh, 2004, 2005. Um, PRICES DID TOP OUT. one of the issues that I have, though, is relative valuations. I, I, you talked about high bond prices a few years ago, and I think it was the third edition of Irrational Exuberance. Uh, and prices are remaining high for bonds, <laughs> and yields have been remaining low, and it looks like they're going to remain low for years. So is it not unreasonable to suggest that the stock market, given the demand for stocks, um, uh, is reasonably valued compared to, to bonds at this point?
2: Well I don't know what reasonably valued means but yeah i'm 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 advocating investing in stocks so i'm not this is not a doomsday scenario for me but i I think that uh it's interesting to note that it is a time of of exceptional uncertainty as I've measured it uh and i i I don't have the ability to say what that necessarily means it could be a contrarian indicator and it could mean that uh it's a good time to invest uh I think you have to, the yeah. market is very complicated, and it depends on the interaction of multiple narratives. Uh, and so I think that there, <laughs> the, the, the mindset that people have today is a bit fragile. There's, and the election coming up is, uh, is in the works. It's creating a sense of dread, uh, which might, there's something that psychologists call the, the uh, affect heuristic, that when you're worried about one thing, you tend to be worried about other things as well. If they don't drive your attention away, uh, and if there's if there's another um, shock downwards, I think there could be a reaction among other investors, uh, and I'm pointing out it as a possibility, not a, not at all a certainty. Uh, but you know, the the stark reality is that people are fearful that this is 1929 again. I'm not making that up. It comes from my surveys, yeah. and they and they think the market is highly yeah. priced. Uh this is a bad combination. It could be a bad combination and I just you know i don't know the certainty what the future will bring i I think people should be aware of that and not over focused or over exposing them to uh to say uh information technology risks,
1: yeah. Uh, Ed, why don't you weigh in here? You're the chief strategist over at Ned David Research. What do you think of what Professor Schiller is saying? Is is, is this a bad combination that we have here with high prices and high anxiety levels, essentially? Uh, And what's what's your view on uh, on what's gonna happen in the next few months?
0: Yeah, if you're talking about valuations of the market, I think one of the challenges is trying to anticipate when earnings are going to come back. Uh, I, I think most people accept that their earnings are depressed because of the pandemic. Right now, consensus estimates are calling for uh, S&P 500 earnings to hit a record high next year. And if the economy re- reopens, there's, it's reasonable to think that that could happen. But if for the pandemic or other reasons uh, that doesn't come through, then we're left with really high valuations and not much earnings growth. And so that's probably somewhere you know, somewhat behind the anxiety that uh, Professor Schiller is, is talking about.
1: So do you, I I mean, obviously what happened last week is a manifestation of what you were talking about. I mean, since 2002, the narrative, as Professor Schiller would say, the narrative has been uh, that 2002 was the earnings bottom, 2003 was better, uh, and 2004, uh, excuse me, uh, Q2 was the bottom, Q3 earnings... HAVE IMPROVED DRAMATICALLY. WE SEE THAT ALREADY. AND IN Q4, THEY'RE GOING TO GET EVEN BETTER. AND EVEN BETTER IN Q1 AND Q2. AND SUDDENLY, WE'RE GOING TO GET A VACCINE AND IT'S ALL GOING TO BE A PARTY AT THAT POINT. THAT SEEMS TO BE THE MARKET NARRATIVE. IT WAS INTERRUPTED LAST WEEK when all of a sudden it became clear that the reopening narrative is not going very well, that we're not slowly marching towards a reopening and there will be stimulus, additional stimulus as a bridge to the vaccine. Both of those narratives, the stimulus and the reopening story, kind of got interrupted last week and the market had a bit of a a, a hiccup. Uh, Do you think those will be resolved? If you look today, the market seems to believe that there's going to be more stimulus because all of the stuff around stimulus is doing better today.
0: Yeah, you know, last week was an interesting dynamic because you know, small cap stocks held up fairly well. Bond yields stayed fairly firm as they they didn't go down. Usually, this was a complete risk off move last week. Small caps, which are vo- more volatile than large caps, they should have gone down. Uh, usually. Investors go into risk risk-free assets or close to risk-free assets, so, so treasuries, um, and so that didn't happen. So it was an odd mix last week. So I, I, the way we interpret it is that investors expect that eventually they're going to get a deal done. Eventually, uh, we're going to get through the pandemic, but. It, you know, is that going to happen right away? And it um, doesn't – you know, that that was, I think, a part of what happened last week. But, but yeah, I think the expectations had gotten to the point where, mm-hmm. hey, this is going to work out fine, and then maybe not as well as we had thought. And I think the other element, to bring it back to earnings, mm-hmm. is that in Q2, expectations were so low that um, – it was the best beat rate, that is the highest percentage of companies in the S&P beat consensus estimates ever. This is going back about 25 years' worth of data. And so coming into this quarter, even though the earnings have been pretty good, they haven't been as good um, versus expectations, and, and that, that probably put a dose of reality uh, into investors as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, before I move on, Professor Schiller, I just want to get your thoughts on bonds, because uh, we sort of have to finish that discussion. Yeah. Um, you've also warned about high prices of bonds for a number of years. Bond prices are still high. I, I'm wondering if you see any change in that a, at all. It's hard to imagine uh, somehow bond prices dramatically coming down unless there's some dr- dramatic inflation shock. Do you do, do you do you have any idea or, or thoughts about what bond prices might be doing in the next couple of years?
2: Well, bond prices have mattered very much for the stock market in certain episodes. I'm thinking of uh, the 1980 1981 82 recession uh, and bond, bond yields. You might have thought then, back then, that they'll never go down. Bond prices will never go down. But uh, I'm sorry, bond yields will never go down. But they did. So, when, uh, when w- with my w- recent paper with uh, Farouk G. Raj and Lawrence Black. We look at how a spread between the the inverse CAPE, or the CAPE yield and the um, ten-year treasury has explained uh, has explained returns. It it does explain uh, excess returns between stocks and bonds. So it looks good for the uh, at the present time because interest rates are so low. And this this kind of uh, analysis takes account of both of the possibility that in, uh, that. Bond prices uh, will decline in the near future, and, the, and just the spread between bond and uh, stock returns. So, uh, yeah, I think for a long-term investor, it's, uh, it's not bad. It's not as good as it's been, the outlook relative to bonds. But bonds are certainly at an extraordinarily uh, low yield right now, and uh, that has to be affecting investors. It's not the only thing at all. Uh, but it's part of the narrative that's driving, uh, has kept stock prices so high. But it lives along with this other narrative yeah. about 1929 and about how stock prices were so high and people didn't believe it. Many people got crushed in the 1929 crash. And that's still there. It's still on many people's minds. It's like a folk tale that they grew up with and they're reminded of again now.
1: Yeah. I agree. Um, I, I just want to move on to talk about the presidency and the markets because, um, Ed, you and I spent some time last week uh, talking about the markets and the elections. Um, there's a couple of very unusual things about this year. I wonder if you can comment on that, particularly that we've had a recession in this year and a 20% drop in the markets. And you and others have noted that historically that does not bode well for the incumbent. Can, can you explain that very briefly?
0: Yeah. So we looked back you know, since 1900 in years when you've had either a recession or a 20% drop in the market. And the incumbent party is oh for the last six times when you've had either of those happened. And of course, this time we've had both happen. You'd have to go all the way back to Harry Truman in 1948 um, to to find a time when a president overcame that scenario. Now, a big question this year is does Trump get blamed for it? This was a unique situation, right? We have COVID. The economy was in pretty good shape yeah. before COVID. So is he going to be blamed because of his response? Or do voters say, hey, he's the best guy to lead us forward from here. So we're, we're going to give him a pass on, on what happened and he'll get reelected. So you always have to handicap these things for what's going on you know, this cycle yeah. rather than just purely looking for six and saying, okay, then Trump's
1: definitely going to lose. But I agree with your point. This is unusual uh, in that you've got the 20% drop in the markets and a recession, and I, I, an incumbent hasn't won under those circumstances since Truman. Is that, is that right, Ed? Now, with these two things against you, your point is this is pretty tough to overcome, but it's not clear whether the electorate will blame Trump or not for this. What's always amazing to me is to point out to people that the stock market has gone up historically Regardless of who's in the White House, regardless of whether it's a Democrat or a Republican in the White House, the market tends to go up. There, under Democrats, this is adjusted for inflation. Ed, these are your numbers, uh, 3.8% when they're in power. And under Republicans, it also goes. The point is it goes up under, under either one. And under, the, I think the important distinction you were trying to make in our discussions last week was what happens when the Congress is involved. How do markets act when a Republican controls the White House and the Congress or a Democrat controls the White House or a con- and the Congress? or a Democrat controls the White House and the Republicans control it. And and here's the results, Ed. And again, what's remarkable to me, Ed, is it goes up no matter what, although the best scenario is when the Republicans are in the White House and the Congress. I wonder if you just comment. What's amazing to me is this is going back to 1900, your numbers here, uh, and they're all up under, no matter who's there, better under Republicans and Congress, both controlling the White House and the Congress. But um, why is it that the market tends to go up no matter who's in office. Can you just sort of comment? I think that's the most amazing thing about this.
0: Well, I think that we over-exaggerate the differences between the parties. This is still a capitalist uh, country, um, it's still a democracy, and so uh, as long as you have those things in place, uh, capital can be treated fairly well, and uh, and investors tend to are rewarded, and you know stocks go up over time. So I think that's the that's the main takeaway uh, from this. I mean, and you can find particular periods when, or particular combinations that have worked um, a little bit better than others, um, in particular if you have a Democrat in the White House, the market tends to do a little bit better when they've had some sort of check on power, um, you know, either Republican Congress or split Congress, since all, all Dems. But, but yeah, you know, it, it's, at the end of the day, um, as long as we still have the basic bedrock in place, uh, you know, that tends to be positive for stocks.
1: Yeah. Uh, Professor, I wonder if you could comment on that. There's a, Ed was sort of bringing up this narrative, yeah. his, you know, your term about this, uh, that the president isn't as influential as in the economy, as many think, but there are, that there's a lot of factors. There's a lot of stories and narratives behind what drives the stock market. And it's yeah. not necessarily the president. We're in a capitalist society, as Ed mentioned, and we've got a court system. I mean, there's other narratives here besides the president yeah. is the emperor yeah. narrative.
2: Uh, first of all, let me uh, uh, say, I think Ed and I are, uh, are kindred spirits. We both like to look at history. And you went all the way back to 1900. That's great. That made me think, dredge my imagination. You know, there was a similar experience in 1876, that's before your sample began, uh, when there was an election between Hayes and Tilden, right in the middle of a depression, by the way, 1873 to 79 Depression. Uh, and uh, 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 Tilden won the popular vote, but lost the election. Uh, and uh, there were also talk of, uh, of cheating. And uh, they had to go to the Supreme Court, I believe, to resolve this issue. You know what happened? The stock market didn't do anything. <laughs> so uh, You can't, it, it's hard to generalize about these experiences. They're all different because they, the, the narratives are different. Some of them might be similar, but it depends on how they trigger other thoughts and narratives. Uh, so I, I, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. I really don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in the, uh, in the election. Uh, I think there's a danger uh, that I, I list these factors of the crash confidence and valuation confidence as kind of like risk factors, uh, uh, just like there were risk factors for COVID-19. Uh, some people, like older people, are more vulnerable. So I think that our, our economy is kind of vulnerable because of a, a bad affect uh, and a loss of trust uh, That that. Uh, Everyone, both sides are claiming the other side is lying. Uh, and that has never happened before, so it's hard to prove what, what, what that will mean. I, I, I still think that the, the situation means uh, a tumultuous market in the coming days, and you have to think about whether you want to put your long-term investment in now or to wait a while for this dust to settle here. And I don't know the answer. It's a difficult thing to, uh, to decide.
1: Yeah, it's certainly very difficult. What it looks like right now is a lot of people are still trying to look over the hump here uh, and to the prospects for a, a vaccine stimulus and the gradual reopening, although it's certainly a lot of hiccups in that market. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs with our Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today we'll be continuing the discussion around elections, and Behavioral Economics and the Importance of Narratives in Economics with Professor Robert Schiller of Yale University. <music> Professor Schiller, while I have you, I just want to bring up that book that you wrote uh, oh, close to a year ago about economic narratives. We had such a wonderful discussion uh, eight or nine months ago. The book was about the importance of storytelling in economics, and it, it focused on how humans understand the world by telling stories. Uh, And while most people don't understand obscure economic theories, they certainly do uh, understand about how the impact uh, of the economy can affect their lives. So this was a great book. And I'm wondering what kind of narrative kind of exists around COVID and the economy right now? Or is it too early? Have we not gotten that since you're very good at explaining stories? And I'm a journalist and a storyteller. I pay a lot of attention to this idea of narratives. What is the narrative you think the public has right now around COVID and the economy?
2: Yeah. Unfortunately, it's a complicated question. There are many narratives. I call them constitutions of narratives. Uh, And there are some old ones that can come back. It's like influenza. A narrative is like influenza. Uh, If uh, there's a mutation or something changes in the contagiousness because of change in the environment, it can start spreading by contagion again. Some narratives are just not very good uh, if you were to rate them on their literary value, but they're good because they're somehow contagious, and so they keep going. I like to mention the narrative of uh, George Washington and the apple tree. He cut down an apple tree, end of story, and he didn't lie to his father about it. That is the most feeble narrative, but it's contagious because people use it to teach values and morals and patriotic feeling. Somehow it, it's contagious, and everybody knows it. Almost everybody knows it. So they, they, yeah. So what is the narrative now? Well, I think that uh, an important one of these list of narratives is the so-called V-shaped uh, recovery narrative. Maybe that's starting to fade, but after uh, uh, March twenty-third, uh, w- which also came at a time of Fed announcing dramatic, uh, aggressive uh, stimulus policy, uh, the market did a V-shaped recovery again. So is that because of some fundamental information, or is it because the narrative? So people thinking in, uh, in March of uh, 2020, uh, they still remember uh, the, uh, uh, the stock market uh, uh, collapse in 2008, 2009. Uh, and so they remember regretting, a lot of people remember regretting not getting into that. When the Fed did this dramatic stimulus, uh, so, they're not economists, but they just know what happened last time. And people tend to overemphasize what happened last time. We made it happen again. But that story, the V shaped recovery story, is starting to get a little old. And uh, the market looks expensive, not yeah. just to me, to them, to the public, as my surveys uh, reveal.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and so, uh, yeah. that may not be such a strong narrative going forward.
1: You know, the, you're right about the narrative around COVID. It's very, very complicated. Like, if you just look at the resistance to the mask wearing, what's what what's around that whole thing? And the narrative seems to be some some narrative about freedom, for example, um, and and resistance to the idea of wearing masks as an infringement upon freedom. There may even be some class narratives uh, round up in that. I'm trying to think of the way you thought in the book, and uh, the book about... Uh, economic narratives. Um, so you're right, there's, there's all sorts yeah. of complicated things wound up in this. So I'm thinking back to Did you the want to say big,
2: the even bigger ep- epidemic in 1918 uh, of, uh, of influenza. And there was mask wearing then and the medical professions was, uh, was urging people to wear face masks. Uh, and there was the same resistance to it. Uh, and so what happened then? That was a bad one. So, we lost uh, over 600,000 Americans when the population was smaller than it is now to that uh, epidemic. But there was a recession in 1918, 1919. Uh, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't, I think, you know, there was another narrative going on at that time, which kind of, believe it or not, crowded out that uh, somewhat crowded out the emotional reaction to that influenza narrative. And that what it was was the end of World War I. Now, World War I was a much better narrative story than the flu because it was about courage and heroism and uh, love for a country and all that uh and so it was that's how people viewed it. They viewed it as the uh, uh as the end of World War one. They had a big parade in Philadelphia, and they didn't do social distancing and lots of people died after that parade. It was a <laughs> uh, armistice parade so uh History repeats itself in that sense.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Let me just move on. You won the Nobel Prize in 2013, as I recall, it was for uh, empirical analysis of asset prices, which is, uh, you know, a fancy word of looking into um, uh, efficient market theory and a little bit of behavioral research. I, I think there's been six Nobel Prizes for. What I would call behavioral market research or behavioral research right. uh, in general. Um, and it's had an enormous impact. it's It has on me in the last fifteen years, and you know since your book came out, but uh, with all of your colleagues who've won for essentially behavioral economics, I, I guess is is there something we can learn from all of this long term? What's amazing to me is just how bad humans are at making decisions in general, how their brains constantly yeah. fool them into making poor decisions, which you and your colleagues have exemplified or, or categorized and cataloged in so many different ways, the heuristics we use uh, right. from the gambler's fallacy on. Is, is there anything we can lo- learn about this? Can you sum up all of this research for us and explain why humans are so bad at well, making decisions?
2: They're not bad. when it, They're not all bad. They can be bad. Uh, we trust our doctors generally, don't we? Uh, Doctors, uh, when they say you need surgery, (laughs) how many people say, I don't believe you? (laughs) Not too many. Uh, But we do tend, yeah, and this is the whole field of psychology. The big lesson that I learned from it is one about general education. I think there's too much specialization. Well, specialization is useful in the modern economy. Of course, you go to a doctor for your illness, you go to a specialist even. But there's a downside to specialization. And I think that in our leisure moments, it's important that we maintain a kind of a general breadth of knowledge stance. Read history or read psychology. Uh, That's the the basic lesson. Because otherwise, you'll be talking to people who are too busy with their specialty to see the big and broader picture. Uh, And you'd be relying on uh, aphorisms rather than uh, real science. That's the lesson I would take.
1: Yeah. Another thing that's amazing to me, and, and you've written about this many times, and you, you mentioned it uh, in the, the book on narrative economics, is just how bad humans are at predicting the future. And not, not just astrologers, but the Federal Reserve is really bad in their economic forecasting. Uh, analysts are bad at the economic forecasting. Uh, it's, it's amazing to me. This is my 30th year at CNBC, and I, I've seen it over and over and over again. And yet here I go. I quote, I quote analysts. I quote strategists all of the time, and yet I think to myself, you know, they're really right, pretty right. bad at this. Why are people, is there something inherently unknowable about the future uh, and asset prices and life in general? I, I mean, what, what, what do you take away from this?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should read um, the book, uh, The Black Swan, uh, uh, that uh, talked about how people overestimate, uh, underestimate those big black swan Nicholas Taleb is the uh, author. Uh, uh, So it is true, there is a tendency to see your your life as a logical regression rather than a series of accidents. So right now we're suffering through COVID-19. We were told it was coming sooner, some virus, some pandemic is coming sooner or later. But we just forgot about it until it happened. And then we said, is this really happening? so uh, again, I think the lesson is to uh, try to become a, a renaissance person as much as you can. I think that's a success. I'd like to see some analysis of that. Uh, I think that's a success story. If you look at the college majors of CEOs,
1: they tend to be uh, all over the map. They're not all business majors. My, my, my point was that you have pointed out that humans are terrible at predicting the future, that the Federal Reserve is terrible at their own economic forecasts, and they're supposedly the best. Analysts don't do it well. Economists are terrible at it. Is is there something inherently unknowable about the future, even the near-term future, even a future a year from now? That's kind of what I take away from all of this with 20 years of reading all your research and all everybody else's research in general. uh, I think it was Philip Tetlock who did the book about how bad Generally, people aren't forecasting anything, not just even economics or the weather. Forget about it. There seems to be something inherently unknowable that's difficult to forecast about the future. Okay. You're making a philosophical
2: point. And I guess I would agree with it. It probably has something to do (laughs) with entropy in the universe. (laughs) Eventually, (laughs) our, our Nobel Prize winner, Roger Penrose, this year is talking about a day that will come when everything is scattered meaninglessly, everything is forgotten. Uh, You've got a number of billion years left to think about that. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I think there is some fundamental underlying principle. But that doesn't mean that we can't forecast in the short run. An analysis of both weather forecasters and uh, economic forecasters is they can forecast out a short time. It's just not long enough. It's not, not comparable to your lifetime. Uh, and there are little things you can do to forecast, yeah. a little bit. And so you, you can pay attention to those things and not worry too much.
1: Yeah. Um, let me just move on. Two, two more quick questions. One of my favorite chapters your Irrational Exuberance was when you talked about the press, and specifically the financial press. And so the implication was, and I'm paraphrasing, was that the financial press is somewhat complicit in helping put together these uh, narratives, for example, of what the stock market is doing on any one day, when in fact, it's characterized by drift, the random walk, as Burton Malkiel uh, would say. Um, has the financial press gotten any better? I'm talking about, by the way, I am the financial press. Uh, uh, yeah. Or are we still sort of complicit in, in putting together these narratives that don't really make any any long-term sense? Well, I
2: think that the, uh, uh, yeah, you you are in a competitive industry as you must know there are competitors and uh you uh, uh people are drawn to news stories that uh that uh, uh, are colorful dramatic uh so there is a tendency to over dramatize a little bit to emphasize uh things like anniversaries of events or uh as if that mattered <laughs> were Maybe it does matter if you talk if you follow them as a as, uh, as a guide to what we should be talking about. But I, I have a certain admiration for them outside the financial press. I have a certain admiration for them. They do have a uh, a set of they, they their ears are open to a wide variety of of facts. Uh, so I I, I think the, the financial press does have a warm spot in my heart, even though they may they may sometimes create bubbles.
1: Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, f- final question. I wanted to ask you about what the current state of the efficient mi- market hypothesis debate was. I don't want to get into anything long and scholarly, but I had Bert Malkiel on last week. Now, you, as I recall, you gave your noble lecture on the subject claiming that, I don't know if it was fallacious is too strong a word, but you didn't agree with it. Bert Malkiel was on last week. I've known him for many, many years, and he defended it again. He said that, All the theory says is that asset prices reflect all the available information. It doesn't necessarily mean that the prices are right. He sort of hedged a little bit there. Is there any agreement on efficient market hypothesis at this point?
2: Well, I have two things I have said about it a long time. Twenty or 25 years ago, I once said uh, the efficient market hypothesis is one of the greatest errors in the history of economic thought. That was my mood. Uh, since then, I've gotten a little bit more charitable. Uh, and I'm inclined to say that it, the efficient markets hypothesis is a half truth. I have to first teach it to my students. I teach finance. I have an online course, by the way, you can take called Financial Markets on Coursera. It's free. Okay. But I, I, I teach my students about the efficient markets hypothesis because they probably underestimate how efficient the market is. And how difficult it is to forecast, but then I unteach it a little bit, and I say that uh, it's not. That doesn't mean the market is right all the time, and in fact, people who who work on trying to predict the market are somewhat successful, especially if they're smart, and and, I, and also I said hardworking. Uh, there's literature showing this, uh, and so uh, maybe you don't want to do it. Maybe your talents. Uh, Maybe you'd like to be a physicist or a microbiologist or an artist. Uh, what do you need all this money for? <laughs> so, uh, uh, but if you really yeah. want to, I think you can. So you're you- uh, somewhat, on the average, beat the market.
1: Uh, it's an interesting. Uh- uh, point at that. Someday we're going to get back to it. I don't want to get into it too long right now, uh, but I really do appreciate you taking yeah. the time out. It's, uh, you've been a tremendous influence on me in the last 20 years, 25 years as the stocks correspondent for CNBC, and we really appreciate uh, all of your work and all of your other colleagues who've done such groundbreaking work in behavioral right. economics in general. Professor Robert Schiller from Yale University, Nobel Prize winner, has been our guest today on the ETF Edge podcast. Professor, thanks very much for joining us. And everybody, have a healthy, happy, and safe trading week.